Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on some of the big stories in the region. My name is Amrin Zaman and this week we'll be looking at how historical enemies, Turkey and Armenia, are talking about peace. It's quite astonishing considering that just last fall, Turkey helped Azerbaijan defeat Armenia in a short and bloody war over the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave. Yet Turkey's President Erdogan and Armenia's Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan have over the past few days aired their willingness to reopen sealed borders and establish diplomatic ties. With us here today to discuss all of these whirlwind developments is Richard Giragosyan, the founding director of the Regional Studies Center, a think tank in Yerevan. He has spent the past 15 years in Armenia pondering all these issues and engaging with regional actors. So welcome to our show, Richard. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's quite surprising to many of us to see how quickly, so soon after this very traumatic war, uh, for leaders on both sides, these two countries that you know, have had sealed borders since 1993 and never established diplomatic ties, sort of sending these warm messages and talking about the need to normalize and uh, Erdogan, President Erdogan, talking about this six country platform of Iran, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Russia, Turkey and uh, Armenia getting together and sort of cooperating and sort of leaving all their disputes behind. Can you explain to us what the rationale on the Armenian side for this is? And is this a politically risky mood for Pashinyan? Well, in a general sense, I would disagree. I'm not surprised. In other words, in the broader context, the lack of diplomatic relations between Armenia and Turkey, the closure of the border, that in many ways represents the aberration, not the norm. So what we do see is a return to normalcy, an attempt to restart diplomatic negotiations over normalization. So in many ways, it is much more exceptional to, to refrain from diplomatic engagement. And this is an important point in terms of also the political context. The Armenian government is a rare commodity in the region, endowed with legitimacy from free and fair elections. After a nonviolent revolution in Armenia back in 2018, and two different free and fair elections, we see an Armenian government now much more confident regarding Turkey. At the same time, we see a new opportunity strategically, given the new landscape in this post-war environment. And specifically, I'm pointing to the plans and proposals for the reintegration of regional trade and transport. So from this context, closed borders, lack of relations is the outlier. And what this represents is the basic minimum of neighborly relations. At the same time, I think the political pressure is much more on Turkish President Erdogan, given his past alliance politically with the hardline MHP nationalist party in Turkey, and 
in many ways, the burden and expectations are much more on the Turkish government than they are on the Armenian government. But there's this deeply traumatic uh, historical background underpinning all of this, the Armenian genocide. And when we saw Armenia, you know, lose this war basically, thanks to Turkish help to Azerbaijan, surely that created, um, you know, and it was doubly traumatic for, for, for the Armenian people. Uh, so that's why it's rather astonishing for some of us to see uh, this prime minister so quickly embrace this idea, not allowing some time at least for, you know, this rawness to, to go away, to subside. But are you saying that well, that's a, the, the Armenian people actually may in the main support this rapprochement? Well, that's a very good point, because what we do see from the war over Nagorno-Karabakh, which Armenia lost in its war with Azerbaijan, there was a degree of unprecedented and very unexpected direct Turkish military support in the war for Azerbaijan. And yes, this is not only emotional, but also politically sensitive in terms of Turkey playing a much more one-sided role in support for Azerbaijan. Having said that, however, the government of Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan has maintained a consistent policy from previous governments. That is a policy of no preconditions regarding Turkey. And at the same time, let's be realistic, we are not talking about reconciliation. We are talking about normalization. In other words, reopening a border and establishing diplomatic relations as a basic first step or foundation for the eventual generational process of reconciliation. And the second reason I do see this as more practical and feasible is in many ways, what we see is a process between Armenia and Turkey. This is not between Armenians and Turks. In other words, this is not involving the diaspora and has nothing to do with Nagorno-Karabakh. And that's the third factor making the timing significant. And that is Turkey has closed the border in 1993 with Armenia and refused to extend diplomatic relations based on Armenian military gains over Nagorno-Karabakh back in the 90s. That political justification and cover no longer applies. So this is a readjustment of Turkish policy. And at the same time, what makes this especially different is the last time genocide recognition was a significant policy issue. It was in the United States in April, not necessarily in Armenia. In other words, the last world leader speaking out in commemoration and recognition of the Armenian genocide and using the word was President Joe Biden in this past April's commemoration. So it's much less about genocide. It's a way to normalize relations with no preconditions. Well, the last time Turkey and Armenia tried to establish diplomatic ties, uh, it all ended in grief, 
precisely because our Azerbaijan, first of all, pretty much blackmailed Turkey into sort of ditching that agreement. Uh, the so-called um, protocols, the Geneva protocols, and the landscape obviously has now shifted dramatically, as you said. But there was also some resistance coming from, as I recall, um, the oligarchs in Ar Armenia, people who benefit from these closed borders and manage to, you know, monopolize uh, trade in their own hands and profit off of the fact that the borders are closed. Are they, I mean, still around and still pushing back? Well, no. In other words, the reason the context is so different now is this government in Armenia, not only being democratically elected, has also instituted and imposed a concerted campaign to combat corruption. The so-called oligarchs in Armenia that enjoyed favor under the former authoritarian governments are no longer holding the same leverage or power to oppose the inherent competition from free and fair trade or open borders. And at the same time, the Armenian diaspora for this Armenian government has much less relevance or political leverage. But at the same time, if we look at the lessons learned from the protocol process, you're very correct in noting that the protocols that were signed between Armenia and Turkey were never implemented for the simple reason that Azerbaijan unexpectedly and rather belatedly sabotaged the process. And it was Azerbaijan that was very effective at derailing normalization. The situation now, however, is a very different Azerbaijan. They are the victor in the war and much less concerned with any real breakthrough in normalization between Armenia and Turkey. At the same time, the motivation for Turkey now is quite different. It's much stronger. Turkey is in danger of being left behind and being left out of the Russian-imposed plan for the reopening of regional trade and transport. So for even the Turkish government of President Erdogan, this is necessary for Turkey to regain its role as a regional actor in the face of a Russian military deployment of peacekeepers, where Turkey has been rather frustrated at less than expected position and power in this post-war region. Armenia-Turkey represents a way for Turkey and this Turkish government, which is in desperate need of a breakthrough in foreign policy and economics, much more inclined to restart the process with Armenia. I should correct myself, by the way, it was the Zurich, not the Geneva Protocols. But um, coming to Russia and, you know, the fact that it now has troops in Nagorno-Karabakh, which it didn't prior to this conflict. Um, clearly, they, they did uh, pretty well out of this war, didn't they? Because often people say, actually, you know, Turkey was uh, the big victor in all of this and was able to, you know, display its uh, military prowess through its drone technology and it sort of changed the facts on the ground through its intervention. 
where does Russia actually stand in all of this? And, and is Russia open to the idea of rapprochement between Turkey and uh, Armenia, or would it feel a loss of uh, leverage if that happened? What's most interesting is if we look closely at the outcome of the war, of course, there were many losers, but the only real winner was Russia for the simple reason that for many years, Russia was always frustrated at Nagorno-Karabakh standing out as the only such conflict within the former Soviet borders without a Russian military presence. The unilateral deployment of Russian peacekeepers was an important success for Russia in exerting greater leverage and also projecting power in the region. Because from a Russian perspective, they were able to sideline Turkey, which has come away from the war with diminished returns. In other words, the Turkish government was expecting and perhaps was promised much more of a role in post-war stability. At the same time, Russia, with a military buildup in Armenia, as well as the peacekeeping presence in Nagorno-Karabakh, has maximized its position. For that reason, Russian support of normalization will likely continue. The Russians supported the protocols back in 2018, and I'm sorry, 2008. And now what we see is Armenia is a member of the Eurasian Economic Union, Russian President Putin's pet project of regional reintegration. So in many ways, the closed border between Turkey and Armenia is also a closed border between Turkey and the Eurasian Economic Union. And to be fair, Russia is so firmly entrenched in Armenia that it can benefit first and most from a reopening of the border with little risk or danger of losing Armenia, if you will. And what this also represents geopolitically is a way for Russia to further isolate and marginalize Georgia. And at the same time, if we look at the relationship between two middle-aged male authoritarians, President Erdogan and Putin, there may be a convergence of interests between Moscow and Ankara over normalization. Well, there's another regional actor out there, Iran. How did they come out of this and how can they play in any kind of rapprochement scenario? Well, I would disagree. I would say Iran has not been a traditional regional actor for two reasons. One is Iran is not prepared to return or re regain its traditional role within the regional dynamic. Uh, Iran, Turkey, and Russia are the historic players and powers. But Iran is much more invested in the bigger prize, the return and re-engagement of the nuclear negotiations with the West. It is looking for sanctions relief and is not interested in the very small, isolated South Caucasus. Secondly, both in terms of Iraq but also now with the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, Iran's priority is much more east-west and much less looking to the north. And 
I don't expect Iran to be a to be more than a marginal factor in terms of developments in the South Caucasus. But there is a chance in the possible breakdown of the talks with the West that Iran at some subsequent point returns to the region. But so far, we don't see Iran playing a very active role. But isn't the worry always in Iran that Azerbaijan would somehow become a sort of uh, staging ground for, you know, encouraging a rebellion among its own ethnic Azeris and, you know, the, the sort of very close relationship with Israel and Azerbaijan that we saw play out, in fact, during this war, which had the interesting sort of effect of bringing uh, sort of Turkey and Israel in alignment over uh, the, a given issue uh, in a long time. Uh, yes. For that reason alone, wouldn't it be somewhat disconcerting for Iran to see Azerbaijan, well, seem stronger, and uh, Armenia, where Iran has some influence by virtue of this common border, and we, we do know that in the earlier Karabakh conflict, Iran was helpful to Armenia. Would, would it not feel some kind of loss of leverage if Armenia and Turkey became friends? Well, actually, no. What we see is there is obviously a security consideration from an Iranian perspective. But this, in terms of a vulnerability to Azerbaijan being used as a staging ground, in your words, has driven Iran to shift its policy. Iran, in this past six to eight months, in the course of the war, has shifted subtly its policy away from a pro-Armenian stance to much more of a favorable position regarding Azerbaijan. Iran, especially under the newly elected president, is much more committed to stabilizing relations with Azerbaijan and is much less interested in Armenia per se. Secondly, we also see less worry in Iran for Azerbaijan becoming a security threat, given the change in leadership in the United States. There's much less of an appetite among the neocons or uh, within the Biden administration to try to uh, threaten Iran with Azerbaijan. And at the same time, I do think even the potential of Azerbaijan's role against Iran is exaggerated. Nevertheless, there is an inherent rivalry between both of these Shia countries. In other words, Iran is very committed to maintaining its monopoly as a Shiite uh, spokestate or leader and doesn't want to share that monopoly with fellow Shiites in Azerbaijan. But I do think that both the religious and ethnic divide and division is much less of a factor. And at the same time, I think Iran is seeing the limits of, of the dividends from its policy toward Armenia over the past several years. It's a very different Turkey now that uh, we have compared to when those Zurich protocols were signed. Uh, the landscape within Turkey itself has shifted dramatically and you now have, you know, practically one man rule in Turkey. And 
one of the symbols of Armenian-Turkish reconciliation, the philanthropist Osman Kavala, is in jail. Um, and he was at the you know, forefront of these uh, civil society initiatives, trying to bring the two people together. I mean, what kind of uh, faith would any <laughs> Armenian leader uh, have in, in, in this government, this very large and powerful country now led by this authoritarian president? I mean, it, it's a very lopsided um, sort of, um, constellation, especially given that Azerbaijan too is, is Turkey's ally, how confident uh, would uh, any Armenian leader be in, in, in conducting a normalization process and have faith that this would somehow not turn against them? Well, there is no confidence and there's even less trust. And as you mentioned, our good friend Osman Kavala who is committed to both a peace initiative with the Kurdish community, as well as Armenia-Turkey normalization, is not only hostage, unfairly sentenced and imprisoned because of uh, his principled stand, but it also shows the current reality in Turkey today. However, I would argue that the asymmetry works both ways. In many ways, if we look at the declining popularity, economic problems, and accumulation of authoritarian strongman rule in Turkey, I do think Erdogan is in a position of weakness and not strength. And at the same time, this is more a move by Turkey to assume the burden of responsibility. From an Armenian perspective, this means that we are quite willing to engage and perhaps even offer gestures of goodwill, but the real challenge is on Turkey itself. And in the bigger picture, genocide recognition, the real arena that counts is increasingly within Turkey. The challenge and responsibility as well as the difficulty is with Turkey in facing its past, rather than uh, something from the European Union or the United States. In that way, it's very hard to deny that even with the protocols failing and not being implemented, they were signed. And the interesting reflection is Armenia-Turkey normalization was never supposed to be that easy or that quick. Yet look at how far we've come. At the same time, there is a dangerous precedent in this post-war situation with Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Turkey. And that is a dangerous precedent showing that there is a military solution to essentially political conflicts. Without a return to diplomacy, that's very destructive. And at the same time, the war itself was a victory of two powerful authoritarian states, Azerbaijan and Turkey over a struggling democracy in Armenia. Well, the other concern I'm guessing in Yerevan is also how the United States and the Europeans have been sidelined in all of this. The Minsk process is extinct. 
they have lost all leverage. Uh, the West has lost all leverage. So it's left to these regional authoritarian, undemocratic players amid which I guess Armenia sort of stands out as the only real democracy. Uh, it, it, again, isn't that a worry that, you know, the West is not engaged anymore? Interestingly for our conversation, I disagree. In other words, what we do see is the U.S. engaging in a strategy of re-engagement and at the same time for Armenia-Turkey, if normalization was led by the United States or depended on the Europeans, it wouldn't work given the state of Turkey today. But at the same time, there is a necessity of a return to diplomacy. Azerbaijan and only Azerbaijan is isolated and refusing to return to diplomatic negotiations over, over transforming a Russian-imposed ceasefire into long-lasting uh, peace negotiations. But what we see is an interesting accidental convergence of interest between Moscow and the West, where Russia is, in my opinion, intent on bringing back the Minsk group process, bringing in the Americans in order to legitimize a unilateral Russian deployment of peacekeepers, the exact opposite of Crimea. And Russia will welcome the European Union engagement to pay for the cost of post-war stability. It's this accidental convergence of interests that not only offers greater hope going forward, but also is pressuring or encouraging Turkey to become more involved. Also, in terms of having a more of a say at, or a seat at the table in post-war stability. But you're very right to raise a concern in Brussels, Washington, and the concern in Armenia of the Turks not endowed with, with confidence or necessarily demonstrating trustworthy measures. But in this way, we are somewhat optimistic that we can make this process of normalization more based on parity. In other words, much less based on the asymmetry of Turkish power and Armenian weakness. But given Armenia's new degree of resiliency, as well as legitimacy. Well, it's very encouraging to hear you sound so optimistic about the future amid all the dark news in the world. So um, I really appreciate all of these um, insights. But one last question, where does uh, the Armenian diaspora, and I know that there isn't a single diaspora, uh, but let's say the various strands of the Armenian diaspora, how, do, how would they view normalization between Armenia and Turkey in the absence of uh, Turkey recognizing, acknowledging the uh, genocide? Well, from my point of view as someone who was raised in the Armenian diaspora and having moved to Armenia some 15 years ago, I'm the grandson of a genocide survivor. Genocide recognition is a fundamental pillar. But at the same time, the diaspora is going to be critical and essential with an imperative for engagement with Turkey 
in terms of normalization being the foundation for reconciliation, being the premise for recognition. This is why as much as Turkey is the arena for genocide recognition, the diaspora can and will play a significant role, not in normalization, but after diplomatic relations and trade allows us to engage in an effort of reconciliation. Well, of course, Turkish civil society also will have a huge role to play and um, the current political environment in Turkey has seen a huge degradation of that civil society, however resilient it is. So uh, we shall see how it all pans out, but obviously we all want peace and friendly neighborly relations between Turkey and Armenia, and I hope we see that happen in the very near future. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. It was great talking to you. Thank you. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here, On Israel, Al Monitor. And this brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. We hope to be with you again next week with another very interesting guest. Music